0: The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This week, we discuss Salem's Lot. Say thank you, Cy.
1: And you couldn't explain that to your mother and father, who were creatures of the light. No more than you could explain to them how, at the age of three... The spare blanket at the foot of the crib turned into a collection of snakes that lay staring at you with flat and lidless eyes. No child ever conquers those fears, he thought. If a fear cannot be articulated, it cannot be conquered, and the fears locked in small brains are much too large to pass through the orifice of the mouth. Sooner or later, you found someone to walk past all the deserted meeting houses you had to pass between grinning babyhood and grunting senility. Until tonight. Until tonight when you found out that none of those old fears had been staked, only tucked away in their tiny, child-sized coffins with a wild rose on top.
0: Well, it's a little overdue. Wow. But here it is. (laughs) The Wheel of Ka has returned. Derek and Steve are back. More literary analysis on Stephen King. You thought, listeners, that we were just going to read The Dark Tower in The Wheel of Ka. But lo and behold. No, no, no. We are going to be doing more. And actually, if you listen to The Wheel of Ka, you know really what's coming. We've talked about it a ton. So, Derek and Steve are back. We are now doing books related to The Wheel of Ka. Yeah,
1: we're going to now do what, like 57 different Stephen King novels? That's the hope. Yes. (laughs) One novel
0: at a time. One novel at a time. I mean, it's been a long time since the listeners here have heard your voice, Steve. Oh, yeah. It's been a while. So question for you. Just kick oh. this
1: off, man. How you feeling? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, today, pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to sit down and do this. Uh, you know, the world, we, li- we live in a crazy place right now, you know? And so that I really do with, I think that, you know, between quarantine and COVID, and the upcoming election, you know, I think that things are constantly stressful, but I'm back in therapy, which is incredible. I am, for the very first time, on uh, medication for my mental health, which I think is important to talk about. Uh, not, you know, like, I'm not, like, trying to commend myself, but, I mean, I think that, in general, in the United States, at least, we should talk more about mental health because we don't, and it's not a stigma,
0: I'm willing to commend you yeah, for hey, well, not only that. not only doing it, but for also bringing that to the podcast. Oh, well, here. I
1: mean, come on. You know, you asked me how I felt. You know, you know what you're getting by this point after a year and a half, almost two years. Like, you know what you're getting. But no, I mean, I feel pretty good. I'm, I'm this book was incredible. Much, much different. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. It's just nice to be back in front of a microphone. And uh, it's nice to be back with uh, with you here, buddy.
0: I know. I would like to just shout out everyone that listened to the Wheel of Ka. We did our series on the Dark Tower. We decided we wanted to continue to read Stephen King, so we announced, I think, back in March. Maybe it was February. Yeah, maybe it was, it was that February. long ago yeah, of I th- 2020. Yeah, I think you're right. That we were going to read Salem's Lot next, and life really got in the way. <laughs> here we are in August and we both had read the book a little while ago but there were just roadblocks and hurdles and scheduling and quarantine concerns and finally we got to the point where we could sit down and actually talk about this book Salem's Lot i am really really excited to like roll up our sleeves and get to work oh, here yeah. on the Salem's Lot you know
1: i want to say something we're we're fucking official now though because we both have notes We have a computer and now both of us have a computer. It's not it's not just Derek here. A little insight into the studio. It's not just Derek looking at a computer with very concise notes and me having the book next to me, but never but never opening it. Never once. Uh, You've opened it once or twice. Once or twice. Like it breaks. But now I brought the laptop because we have notes. We have notes. It's official. We have done our homework. We We have a structure now.
0: We have a very tight structure. I'm just kidding. It's probably going to go off the rails. Oh, it's absolutely
1: very quickly.
0: Um, but I'm. I just got to say, it's been an, a treat to do this project. You've mentioned how tough things are for the world. Mm. How tough things are for you. I commend you for going to therapy and for taking medication for mental illness. Like that's really amazing. I do honestly mean that. And I, I think that. this is definitely the time to dive in. To some
1: smutty, oh, yeah, gross, oh bloody yeah. horror book, oh vampires and and weird towns in Maine. And I uh, love that we're gonna, I love that we're gonna spend like however long we're gonna do this in in the state of Maine. Have you ever been to Maine? You know what? I never have. You know what's crazy? Neither have I. But I've been to Vermont and I've been to uh, is it no? Is it Rhode Island? Nope, nope. Live free and, or die. New Hampshire. There you go. <laughs> ha ha. He looked at me like I should know. I was like, come on, man. The history guy, you got to know geography too, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, but the, we were, we, I was in Vermont not too long ago and I, I'll tell you the land of Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I get it. I, I, I get it. I yep. get why this new England's a is a wild place.
0: I have wanted to do a new England vacation road trip for a long, long well, time.
1: Yeah. Going like October.
0: Fun fun fact. Laurel and I were going to go to Colorado for our vacation this year before the world started to end. And we had booked a night in the Stanley Hotel. Oh, right. And booked a walking tour. And if you don't know what the Stanley Hotel is, listeners. Oh, we'll get there. It's the hotel that The Shining is based upon that Stephen King stayed in. And it's the hotel, or, or no? I'm sorry, I got it backwards. It's the hotel used when Stanley Kubrick shot the movie. Right. It's not the hotel that Stephen King stayed in, right. but it's the all of the actual hotel shots, not the exterior. They used a different, um, you know, property for the exterior, but all of the interior hotel shots were done at the Stanley Hotel, and we are going to stay there. And they have no. this amazing thing where you can get a drink at night. So you get a drink. Everyone gets a drink at, oh, the, bar, at the bar, the same bar that Jack oh, Torrance no, drank no,
1: why? at. And then they take you on a ghost walk. See, this is where, okay, all right. Well, okay, cool. That's great, you know? And then I'm, the pandemic happened. We couldn't do it. Uh, you know, uh, Rebecca, my wife, would love that. I mean, I, I that's pretty cool. I would be terrified. That's the really interesting part about doing this part of the project is that I am terrified of horror. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be real interesting when we get to it. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, it but is committed. We're doing it.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is interesting that you
0: have a bad reaction generally to horror, which I adore. You know, one of the reasons I'm excited to do this project post the actual dark tower is I believe very fervently that there's not enough horror talk out there. Now, granted, there's a ton. So I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. Oh, you would know much better than I do. People do talk a lot of horror out there online, in podcasts, in blogs, and forums. So I'm not saying that the conversation is absent, but I'm saying that in the communities I tend to dialogue with the most Mm -hmm. online, fantasy and sci-fi have an exalted place, almost as if it's looking down upon horror and I want to change some minds. And I want to change yeah. some minds starting with Salem's Lot. Lot. So I think the first thing I'd like to do getting into this, I'm just going to read the description on the back of the novel. It's too much to recap. But some of you listening, it, hey, it may have been a while since you've read it. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get us started with this sort of feeling of it. And I will start now. Ben Mears has returned to Jerusalem's lot in the hopes that exploring the history of the Marston House, an old mansion long the subject of rumor and speculation, will help him cast out his personal devils and provide inspiration for his new book. But when two young boys venture into the woods and only one returns alive, Mears begins to realize that something sinister is at work. In fact, his hometown is under siege from the forces of darkness, and only he, with a small group of allies, can hope to contain the evil that is growing within the borders of this small New England town. With this, his second novel, Stephen King establishes himself as an indisputable master of American horror, able to transform the old conceits of the genre into something fresh and all the more frightening for taking place in a familiar, idyllic
1: locale. Ooh, it's so good. That is really good. It's good. It's so. Good. Well, let's get let's get through the boring stuff. Yeah, well, which yeah. I actually think is pretty cool. But yeah. we'll talk a little bit because we because I really, don't think we, this is boring. Well, no, with The Dark Tower, you know, we kind of mentioned a little bit about background, but I think it's good. I think it would be good for the listeners for us to give a little bit of background about each novel. Do it. Okay. So, this book was released in 1975, and it was his second published book after Carrie. So, the second one was and it was really was wildly popular. Uh in two separate interviews in the 1980s, Stephen King said that of all of his books, Salem 's Lot was his favorite. Now he said that multiple times, okay now, apparently, uh, he had an interview in like 1983 in uh, with Playboy, and he you know the interview mentioned that because it was his favorite, he was planning a sequel, so he was going to write a sequel to this book, but he said on his website, wait, this is the coolest shit. They quote, the Dark Tower series already continued the narrative of the Wolves of Kala and Song of Susanna, so he felt like there was no longer a need for a sequel. So that that story was told. I think that's I think that's pretty cool. I mean, that relates
0: directly back to the Tower. Yeah. That the sequel to Salem's A Lot happened, and it was Wolves of the Kala. It, it had and already happened,
1: which is really cool. Um. And then again in 1987, so four years later, he told uh, this magazine called The Highway Patrolman, quote, in a way, it is my favorite story, mostly because of what it says about small towns. They're kind of a dying organism right now. The story seems sort of down home to me. I have a special cold spot in my heart for it. Like, I just, he's so cynical. He is. By he, you mean King. By Stephen King. Yeah, by he, I mean King. I mean, he's so cynical, but just... Just some of the things he says about his own reading. And I figured the last thing that was was really important to mention was that he, Stephen King has said before that every novel to some extent is a piece of himself or a piece of what he says as, quote, the inadvertent psychological portrait of the novelist. And then he continues to say, quote, I think that the unspeakable obscenity in Salem's Lot has to do with my own disillusionment and consequent fear for the future. In a way, it is more closely related to invasion of the body snatchers than it is to Dracula. So he was really into Dracula. Uh, during he he taught a class. Uh, I forget what the colleges. He taught a class. It was like a, it was like a science fiction horror class. And that's when he fell in love with with Bram Stoker's Dracula. And the and the the rest of the quote says the fear behind Salem's Lot seems to be that the government has invaded everybody. So he really was looking at this book as, as also a story about the corruption in local government, which I think is wildly interesting, in small towns in New England. So that's a little bit of background that I had on this book. Man, that's so interesting. You know,
0: in reading this book, and this was my first time reading it, I was struck Me how, too. how Stephen King paid respect to standard vampiric stories There are vampires. They are reanimated corpses. They have to feed on blood. They have superpowers. They can't go out in day. They don't like garlic and they don't like Christianity. Right. But how different they are in the respect that all it takes is a bite. That's it. And you become a vampire. Most vampire narratives, Bram Stoker's Dracula's included, adds an extra level of how a vampire delineates between prey and vampiric child Mm -hmm. think of true blood Mm -hmm. in which um in order to raise someone after they feed them they have to feed them their blood and that's a standard refrain think of bram stoker's dracula directed by francis ford coppola in order for people to become infected with the vampire they have to drink the blood of the vampire right before they die this is also true in interview of a vampire another common Mm -hmm. popular culture piece of vampire lore it's a standard piece that the vampire must do something and it's usually feed the blood to their victim in order for the victim to then die and become a vampire. Stephen King makes it anyone bitten by Barlow and died returns as a vampire. And in this, it does feel more like body snatchers. Mm -hmm. It does feel more like a contagion. It does feel more like zombie except
1: for Callahan. When he physically makes Callahan drink his blood, And then, you know, Callahan walks away with the taste in his mouth. You're so right. And doesn't kill Callahan. It's the only, only, he's the only
0: person. He feeds him the blood to kind of mark him with evil. forever. Instead of just killing him and then having him rise. Yeah, he damns him for life. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think there is a interesting element of how he relates vampire to America. And he makes the American vampire. And in that, there are things like paranoia, things like cynicism, big themes that you hit, which we're going to get to. Before we get to that, everyone here listening knows us as a Dark Tower podcast, as Dark Tower fans. So we wanted to read Salem's Lot from the perspective of how it relates to the Tower. Mm -hmm. We've already started that conversation in mentioning that Salem's Lot doesn't have a sequel because of Wolves of the Kala and Song of Susanna. So in many respects... The sequel is embedded in the stories we've already talked about. What? What other ways do you think this book relates to the tower, Steve?
1: Well, I mean, the the two very direct examples are, I mean, Father Callahan is the direct character reference, right? And we 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 see we finally see the story that Callahan tells to the Cottet and Wolves of Kala. So now it's a real thing; it's tangible, right? It's like, oh shit, this actually did happen. The second thing is, you know, we get, we get the low men. We get the three different stages of vampires. You know, we have, well, I think we get two, right? We get the bitten, so we get level two, and then we get, like, the grand vampire, which is Barlow. But then you have, but what's it, Straker? Striker? Yeah, Straker. Right? You have, you have him who's basically, I mean, I would guess Barlow's host, essentially. Yeah, I, I read Straker as 100% human, just doing the will of a vampire. And that's so funny because the first like 40 pages of the book, I was convinced that he was a vampire. Oh, oh God.
0: <laughs> Steve's breaking the studio, sorry, everyone. Sorry, it's a different setup. Well, not only are we haven't done this in a while, we've also shifted where the studio is. Yeah, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> Laurel and I are having a baby, so our old podcast yes. studio Ugh. is now a soon-to-be anniversary. I, I, I kind of like it. I'm not going to lie. Yes, it's just we don't have as much space, and Steve and
1: I are what we would call large men. Yeah, and I right, I have the microphone on top of a printer.
0: Yes, so anyway, so I knocked
1: the printer over anyway, no because big again deal. I'm flailing my limbs. And
0: I love that we could have decided to edit that but out. We're not going to but now. We just decided to roll That's with it. That's it. It's yeah, happening yeah. now. It's anyway, live. Anyway, so yeah, Callahan is a major
1: character starting yeah. in Wolves to Calla. And, and he's and, not a major character in this book. He's a. a an important character. He's an important, but he—he's most certainly a secondary character.
0: I totally agree. Yeah, he
1: is not. He is not part of the quartet in this story.
0: You know, but Callahan's narrative directly relates. Not only is Callahan related to the Dark Tower because he's a character in it, but Barlow says something to Callahan mm. when, when Callahan's faith fails and the power runs out of the cross and Barlow remarks about what it's like to see a man's faith fail. Barlow also goes on to a long speech about how it's not really Catholicism that gives you power. It's not really that your God or your symbols, Mm. it's your belief. It's the belief in what Barlow says, the white, Mm -hmm. a theme that echoes throughout the dark tower that Roland talks about, that the Knights of of Roland and Gilead were fighting for, which was they were fighting for the white, the idea of an inherent transcendental good as part of the universe
1: and I, I don't know about you, but I automatically assume that Barlow probably came from closer to Roland's world than Callahan's world in terms of his origins I mean thousands of years, yeah
0: I mean he he is he, I mean he talks about Rome and right. history. So Barlow is very ancient. Yeah, he's, he's I, old. Very I old. totally, totally agree. And he mentions that, you know, without faith, the symbol means nothing. Right. Without channeling the white. And I thought that was interesting as we see Callahan, we think about his character in Wolves of the Kala and Song of Susanna redeeming
1: his faith. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I see Callahan in this book as, as a much different person, as a much more devout Catholic at the very beginning, much more a devout priest who really, I mean, quirky, but definitely, you know, maybe more of a Jesuit, but definitely a priest that that believes in God, believes in the word of God, I should say, until he has his experience with Barlow.
0: Really? See, I see him in this book. As walking the razor-thin edge the entire time. I
1: mean, it's not, it's not like
0: he's I see him drinking too much. Well, well okay, I see well, that's the like, difference.
1: Well, sure, but, but he still has those vices. But as far as faith goes, I think he has much more faith right now or at the beginning of Salem's Lot than he does hmm. by either the end of Salem's Lot or or certainly by the time we get to see him in Wolves of the Kala. Really? See, I th- see him. I mean, he gets his faith back in Wolves of the Kala, but I think that's through the content. I see. So I
0: read that a little differently. I, and I'm not saying you're it, wrong. No, no, just, uh, I, I, no, no, please, please. I just have a little bit of a different interpretation. I see Callahan as institutionally Catholic in this without any real faith. They mention when he first feels the power of the cross when they go to Barlow's house as the most exciting thing that's happened to him in his life. Because he finally feels, he talks about the difference between uh, different types of faith, like old world faith Mm -hmm. and modern faith, Mm -hmm. and how he's kind of lost in the malaise of modern faith. And he finally feels a taste of old world faith, faith in like, like, there's good and there's evil, and I'm good and I will fight the evil. And he doesn't believe in it enough,
1: which is why he fails. Sure. I hear that. But I still see him... Okay, I guess to put it a different way, I see him as being more involved, maybe even more institutionalized in Catholicism than he is in the Wolves of Kala. Maybe not that he has greater faith, but that he is much more indoctrinated into you know, that Catholicism, you have to do, there's works and there's things that we have to do. And the fact that you have to go to church and he might be lost in the malaise, but I, I see him more as a holy person in this book than I do in wolves. That's fair. And he does
0: say when they first asked him to go to the Marston house, he does say, and I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't write it down, that if he's going to bring holy water and other holy relics, that he's not going as himself, but as an emissary of the Catholic church and like as himself, he's more than willing to go, but as a emissary of the church, there's certain considerations. So he does push back at the original task to become a vampire hunter. Right. And it isn't really until he feels the true power of, of his holy symbols that he then accepts it. And ultimately he fails to really defeat Barlow because, as Barlow says, his faith fails. He's a doubting Thomas. Exactly. And in this way, I think it's very much related to the overall spirit of the Dark Tower, that there is these like cosmic forces. Some can be good and some can be evil. And who will reign? And Callahan's presence in this book kind of translates and transcends some of those. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's the most I can say about how it relates to the tower. I don't
1: don't have anything else. I really don't. And if we're missing something, fans, let us know. Yeah, please. I do have one thing that I wrote down. I'm glad that you said the Marston house uh, because I want to talk about, I want to ask you something later. Okay. Like later on if we go. Oh,
0: Easter egg. Do you want to ask me this now?
1: No, the concept of like, well,
0: well now that if we're going to pivot to the book, let's talk to, let's go more to the book, less about the tower. So,
1: Let's talk about the Marston house. I am so glad. Let's do it. Let's talk about haunted houses and like murder houses. Because that's essentially what this was, right? So in the book, you've got the original owner who kills his wife in the house, right? And then um, I would assume under the influence with Barlow, like Barlow's been to this house before. Oh, really? I thought so. Interesting. Maybe not under the influence, but I think Barlow's been in this town before.
0: I think you're hitting. I think you're hitting the nail on the head on this book's debate about evil. Yeah, because Ben Mears has a theory about evil, and it's about the house it, it, that evil is attracted to things, and that it's a beacon. Yeah, and if something evil happens at one place, it will attract other evil.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think his use of this haunted house essentially, because that's what it feels like. Like the Marston House feels like a character in and of itself. And that is very similar to the dark tower that a place or a, or a monument or a moniker feels like a, like a living being. Right. Right. Like to me, the Marston house fucking breathes like it moves. It's like an organ. (laughs) Right. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what it feels like to me. And the fact that I do think that evil begets evil, especially when that, when, when evil is not settled in a place, when evil, when pure evil happens in a space and then it just sits and festers for generation and, and in this, it really in this, what, for, you know, 100 years or whatever it is, 150 years, you know, it sits and it festers and it and it becomes worse and worse and worse. Well, evil is going to come back and reign again. And that's what happens in this house. Yeah. Now, I don't, you know, the one thing that really confused me is like, why is Ben, so attracted to that house other than the fact that like, did he or did he see, did he or didn't he see that body? That's the crux of it. So
0: Ben Mears is convinced that yes, he saw something that that something he saw with his own eyes. And that is evidence of the evil beacon theory. We'll call it that an evil act that's done will linger psychically and that there will be a beacon that'll attract other evil to that place that's what makes a haunted house a haunted right. house exactly so whether he saw it literally or whether he imagined it is less the point that the evil is there is right? that
1: manifestation
0: and <clears throat> but i do think the book offers a contrary theory about the origin of evil and why in particular the evil of barlow comes right. to this town right. as with the real estate developer which i wrote in my notes real estate developer and not the name of the character and I'm a little annoyed at myself. Oh, it's fine. There's
1: so many people in this book.
0: But it goes like this. Did Barlow come to this place because the Marston house is a beacon? Or was there another devil in this town that was willing to attract Barlow? And that feels like the chicken and the egg. The real estate doesn't it? The real estate developer has made millions Mm -hmm. but maintains a sort of like town lifestyle by selling really cheap real estate and really cheaply made housing to poor people and charging a lot. He describes it as going into tunnel with girl A, but you sleep with girl B and leave the tunnel holding girls a hand, right? So he is described as duplicitous, as greedy, and he's the person that Straker comes to, right? And that Straker goes and says, I need a point person Mm. to run our affairs because without this greedy real estate developer willing to hide the evil, the evil would be exposed too early. Right. This doubles when they, the two movers are there and they see the remains of the boy that's missing. And the real estate developer is just like, maybe you didn't see those remains. Maybe Mm -hmm. that didn't happen Mm -hmm. and pressures and pays off the workers to be like, right. Let's cover up this evil. Right. So the town has a sense of history. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me repeat the quote. The town has a sense, not of history, but of time. The telephone poles seem to know this. If you lay your hands against one, you can feel the vibration from the wires deep in the woods as if souls had been in prison and they were struggling to get out. Mm -hmm. The town itself has this sense of time, but not of history. Everyone's struggling to get out. And all it took for Barlow to infest this town was to have one person willing to trade lives for money. And what's the real beacon here? Is it the haunted house? Sure. Or, or is it just the inherent evil of human beings? And I think that's the crux of what this book is saying about evil. And in maybe, many ways, maybe it's a little bit of column A and column B. Oh, sure. I mean, it could be a mixture of both. Um, But it doesn't, to me, the book doesn't come down clearly and say, yeah, it's this beacon, it's this evil house.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it also calls into question when he talks about the corruption in government, right, in local... You know, real estate agents in local communities like this have a lot of power because they have control over the land and who gets to get access to that land and whatnot. And so, sure, I mean, that there's corruption from there. There's, co- I mean, there's corruption from the fact that the police wanted to hide this from the town and the, and the fact that like information gets out. Through two old white women that sit in their house with fucking binoculars and the fact that like this entire town is infested with people who are super nosy for people who butt into their business. I mean it's that classic Americana small town where everybody knows their neighbor and that's supposed to be a positive thing and in fact this that situation ends up getting multiple people killed. Totally. Their curiosity and their nose, you know, you know p- poking their nose in everybody's business ends up getting them killed.
0: A quote here, the town cares for the devil's work no more than it cares for gods or man's. It knew darkness and darkness was enough. Right. And I think it's more about, and there's a reason why I think the title of this book is not the Marston house.
1: It's yeah, Salem's law. It's not about the house. I mean, the house is just, a, uh, the house is almost a convention. Right. But I like the idea that it is a beacon because the house is what attracts the evil to the town, but it's the other players within the town that keep the evil there. Yeah. And maybe
0: the house is a beacon of evil. But the question is, if you live in a town with a beacon of evil and you've been going through your day to day routine just fine with this beacon of evil, maybe you've also invited the evil in. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's ignorance is bliss. And it's telling, what do the vampires need to kill you? They need to be invited in. Right. Right. And I think having the house there, having it stand as a representation, yes, it's, it's in parts of Beacon, but you do have to invite it in. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of something else that I want to kind of talk about. And it's about what Barlow says about America. And I think this is really interesting and instructive. I think it does speak to the cynicism of of King, but it also speaks to why Barlow wanted to come to America to begin with. Because the way I read it, presumably, he came from Europe to America and specifically chose Salem, Salem's lot. So let me read this quote here. And it is in the 70s. Yes. So, you know, a very cynical time in this country. It was. And, we, and this is where I think it's interesting because we are also in a very cynical time. So Barlow says, they, they being Americans, have never known hunger or want. The people of this country, it has been two generations since, it has been two generations since they knew anything close to it, and even then, it was like a voice in a distant room. They think they have no sadness, but their sadness is that of a child who has spilled his ice cream on a grass at a birthday party. There is no, how is this in English? They, spell, they, spell, they spill each other's blood with great vigor. Do you believe it? Do you see it? And then he continues, the country is an, Ameri- is an amazing paradox. In other lands, when a man eats to his fullest day after day, that man becomes fat, sleepy, piggish. But in this land, it seems the more you have, the more aggressive you become. You see, like Mr. Sawyer, so much, yet he begrudges you a few crumbs from his table, also like a child at a birthday party. Who will push away another baby even though he himself could eat no more? Is it not so Barlow in this is expressing a certain air of American um, greed, American consumption, and he links it directly to childish violence. Mm -hmm. The more we have, the more we want to slap away the other kid at the birthday party because what's mine is mine. Mm -hmm. And it attracts him to this country. So this is not Barlow saying, you know, I found this really creepy haunted house. Right that really gets me going this is not him saying i needed a corrupt real estate man to cover up my affairs so i could settle in this is him saying it's your greed it's your laziness it's your you know predilection towards aggression mm-hmm. that attracts me to you that
1: he can feed off of
0: i, I want a challenge i want to feed off of you aggressive americans cuz you're going to make the most aggressive vampires yeah absolutely and what happens within the span of a short period of time, the whole fucking town becomes vampires. He ruins a town, the whole town in old Europe. He, he's essentially saying it's impossible, but here with everyone's greed and want to consume and their love of violence, all I need is a few bites. And suddenly I've got a whole town to my own. And I thought that was a interesting, a reflection about Americanist. It's what would attra- attract the vampires to America. And it, is a really interesting summation, and I don't think directly because we're now in 2020. So Stephen King had no idea, right? There'd be a global pandemic, no, and people trying to profit off of it. But you
1: know, he does. I mean, he uses pandemic and 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 vi- and, and the idea of a virus in a lot of his stories. And is vampireness not a pandemic? And in it this?
0: absolutely is a, a, a health crisis of an entire community. Oh, oh especially s- in this town, spreading out of control. Yeah. Um, are we not reading the pandemic? What does the sheriff do when confronted finally with the overwhelming evidence that this town is going to hell? The sheriff packs the fuck up and leaves. And leaves. Gets out of town. What does the priest do leaves. when he fails a battle? Gets on a bus. Gets the fuck out of town. He gets out of Dodge. And It comes to a writer and a child to try to to, to salvage this and maybe... The only way they can is maybe at the end they've succeed in burning it to the ground. Mm. And that is like, man, is that a weird metaphor for where we're at right now?
1: Oh, sure.
0: Man, did that not resonate with me that eventually someone's going to come in and be like, it's just time to burn this because there's too many Barlows. There's too many stakers. There's too many Cowardly sheriffs, there's right. too many greedy real estate developers, there's too many people just being aggressive and gorging themselves off the blood of this nation without any regard to cost. And here we are living in the results right. of it.
1: Right. Vampires in mean, one his- degree or another. History repeats itself, you know that, you know. Indeed. Anyway. There you know, there's there's three other characters that I think are worth mentioning. Um, Sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent. No, there. no, no, no! Please, there's no ta- no apologies. Damn it! What are you doing? Don't so apologize. A podcast is so, sort of like two people's tangent. This is so. it. Yeah, so, and I, I loved a tangent. So the other three people I, I, I wanted I think that are worth mentioning are are Susan, uh, my favorite character Matt Van Helsing, otherwise known, and uh, and Mark Petrie, the Let, boy. Let's let's do it. So let's talk about Mark first. Um, so Mark, you know, again, this story, Stephen King is in two different characters for me in the story. He's both Mark and he's Ben. There are bits and pieces of him, right? Agreed. Like Ben is a, a, a pretty, pretty spot on representation of Stephen King, but Mark Petrie, you know, he's got a pretty tough, he doesn't have the easiest home life. He's a pretty emotional kid. He's a pretty, he's a pretty empathetic child, which is rare for his age um I know that growing up they would call him the quote weird kid which I think is everybody's weird but you know he's 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 strange. He likes, you know, he loves having action figures of different monsters from monster movies and you know he's 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 an introvert. He's not super extroverted. But to me Mark is one of the biggest heroes in the story. You know, I mean this kid has to not only overcome the fear of of his home life but the fear of fucking vampires. And when we first get
0: introduced to, he beats up the bully in the school right too.
1: I mean, this kid's getting picked on and he beats the crap out of the bully. And you're like, Oh yeah, I, I, I this kid is going to be important later. You know? And I, I think Mark is, is, is interesting to bring up because Stephen King, once again, you know, I see a lot of similarities between Mark and Jake chambers a lot, right? Roughs rough home life, not the greatest in school, feels like he's a bit of a troublemaker, super intelligent, super empathetic for his age. And again, Mark becomes one of the heroes to me in the story. Yeah, I totally agree with that too. And everything that you just said. And one of the things I want to bring up that I think is brilliant about this book that almost reminds me a bit of like an open world RPG video game the way that video game stories are told is that, you know, when you first read the book and you're reading the, the prologue and you're reading about the story of this man and this child and they're traveling and clearly they've been through things. It feels very much like a zombie story. You know, again, like, like the body snatchers, it feels very much like a post-apocalyptic because in that town, the apocalypse did happen in Salem's lot, right? That they're getting away from. And then when it comes back, at the very end, and you realize like, holy shit that's Ben and Mark I, I think that is such a brilliant piece of, of we're going to start in one place and that everything is a wheel oh look Stephen King bringing the wheel back around right
0: is it like a wheel of Ka? Ka? yeah,
1: we are sponsored by <laughs> <laughs> i I totally agree. I thought
0: one of the one of the things that Stephen King does best in Dark Tower and in this is to have a really interesting young boy character Mm -hmm. who turns out to be a fantastic hero. Now, spoiler alert, I see a lot of young Derek in those characters like Jake and like Mark, and I really identify with the kid that's a little weird, who's a little out there, who ends up being the difference between surviving the zombie slash vampiric apocalypse or not, and I really gravitate towards that because that's something that I saw in myself. And that is to me an argument, I'd say, broadly speaking about Stephen King, is where I can't say his stories are all about cynicism. Otherwise, why are so many children heroes? Innocence and bravery, these like admirable characteristics end up being the difference maker between life and death so many times and mark is a great example of absolutely. that absolutely
1: and i think it's easy you know it's easy to say oh well this writer is cynical right but basically I, I which mean, i think is true i do think it's true and i think it's one piece of stephen king you know and i think sometimes we get hung up on focusing on that one piece but there is a lot of hope and a lot of love and a lot of uh, you know a lot of very positive qualities to what's th- to what stephen king writes I mean, there is the hero's journey. There is this idea of an ensemble, of a team, that that you will succeed if you... You will not do it alone. You'll succeed if you're with people that you care about. That's a very common theme throughout his books. You know, they feel like big ensemble pieces.
0: Yeah, my favorite line that existed in this book was about Mark, so much so that I notated it to read here, because I thought it, it just blew me away. And I will read it now, and it's about Mark. The night before, Matt Burke had faced such a dark thing and had been stricken by a heart seizure brought on by fright. Mm-hmm. Tonight, Mark Petrie had faced one, and ten minutes later lay in the lap of sleep. The plastic cross still grasped loosely in his right hand like a child rattle. Such is the difference between men and boys in this quote and the reason i like it is that men think they're going to save it all they're going to be the heroes they can face it you know whatever they they can they can hold on to whatever they need to hold on to they can save everyone and in the end mark faces a vampire and sleeps And that's the difference. Mark can face real evil Mm -hmm. because Mark has no doubt that real evil is exists in the world and is better prepared
1: to face it than all of the adults, including father Callahan. And it's because I think he's the bravest. I think there's something about being that young and being, I don't want to say naive because that's not the word that I mean, but, but just being youth, I would say all of these characters are incredibly brave. But Mark
0: is the only one that's able to sleep because he accepts the evil as it is. Sure,
1: and it's also pretty cool that he's a nerd, and I love when the oh, nerds yeah, when save he, the day. Plus, when he collects all the action figures. Oh yeah, oh, I used to love those monster movies. Absolutely, but I used to grow up. My uncle Sonny, my 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 dad's brother-in-law, he we used to watch like all of the you know every single Godzilla movie that was ever made, like Abbott and Costello Meet the Werewolf. I mean, we watched. Uh, I, I, you know, I could nerd out about that completely just by itself. But I see that, I, you know, and I, I also saw that bit of myself in Mark. The difference between Mark and I is that I've always been a really obnoxious extrovert. <laughs> you know, like I've always needed attention from other people. Where Mark's like, "Yeah, I'm cool. I'm good. I got this on my own." What a Gryffindor! Yeah.
0: You know, I'll give or you another, I, I love it. Another quote I'll give you with Mark in that it, uh, it, and it's about humans dealing with monsters and why boys are better. So the, his experience details how ill-prepared adults are for monsters. After all, it's been a long time since they believed in them and that the terrors that keeps adults asleep are, are traits compared to the terrors of a child. The Hold on, my quote got all effed up. Long story short, I messed this up. It's about children still believe in the monster under their bed. So when they see it for real, they're like, okay, I've been prepared for this. Mm -hmm. When adults are just thinking about the standard things, their taxes, their jobs, their careers, their mortgages, they don't believe in monsters anymore. So when monsters actually happen to exist... They are ill prepared and equipped to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And Mark believing in monsters tangibly that they are real is what equips him to deal with these monsters. He has that knowledge, which is that
1: power and, and that belief. So the second person I want to talk about is Matt. I love Matt. You know. You know what's crazy? I I end up loving the characters in Stephen King novels that I don't always trust at first. Like I, I will hearken back to Eddie. Remember, if if anybody remembers when we when we read the second book, I fucking hated Eddie. I thought he was annoying. You know, and then I end up he end up beco- he becomes my favorite character. And Matt felt like the same way. There was just something about this like older white man in this town who was educated, who I just I didn't trust right away. I guess I always had this like impending sense of doom when it came to Matt. But I, I don't know. I'm so charmed by him. You brought up earlier, the only reason I made the Van Helsing reference, by the way, that was not me. That was Derek. I just said it. But you made that reference. I was like, holy shit, that's that's so true.
0: Well, the only reason I brought that up is because when uh, the doctor because jimmy cody than I am. No. <laughs> the doctor Jimmy Cody and Ben are when Matt is in the hospital right. giving them directions Jimmy looks at at Ben and goes like does he remind you of anyone and he goes yeah Van Helsing or it might have been the other way around but they actually call him Van Helsing Oh yeah, absolutely. oh yeah. In this book which is just like okay, so when it comes down to it Matt becomes the vampire hunter. And he's the sleuth And he does it all from a hospital bed. Tell me something. I have a question for you, which I know you hate when I say that. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Now, and this is really easy. Okay. You said that you didn't really trust Matt to begin with. In the the beginning, yeah. But he became your favorite character. Right. Could you tell me why Matt's your favorite character?
1: Oh, I just think I'm really into... I I like it. I really like it when, like, the old patriarch figures things out like i don't know like i just see him as being rugged i I think also because i found out that james cromwell plays him in the movie and it's just like he's so charismatic he cares so much about the town and the people in like a weird backwards way he reminds me of the only fucking liberal in the town too like he's like the only one that thinks outside the box i you know i don't know if you know this about me or not Derek, but i have a thing about where i'm like perpetually attracted to like the alpha males in my life. Like I look up to those people. And so even in literature, in movies and whatever, I constantly find myself like looking up to that patriarch. Fuck the patriarchy, by the way, I should say, these are two different things, but like the older male in charge in that situation, but not like the older white guys in charge of the world. I just want to make that clear. Okay, I just want to make that decision. So you like the wise old elves. Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: But you don't like the like, Donald brutal Trump. dictator Donald exactly, Trump. Yeah, I totally get guys. that. Right, yeah.
1: right, right. So anyway, that to say that like I, f- I find myself, even in literature, like Matt to me is the wise old sage. And the fact that he can figure this out from the bed, have that experience with the, with the man in the bar, the gravedigger, who saw the- the-, the 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 dead dog, which was traumatizing by the way, that was traumatizing. Ugh. But well, the fact
0: dude, you want to talk about traumatizing, oh, dude. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so Laurel's reading the book in preparation Ugh. for this podcast. She wants to listen to it, loving it. And then there is the and Laurel and I are expecting a baby. And then there's the character who abuses oh, her baby. Yeah, that's and tough. then the baby dies. Yes. Yeah. And Laurel, like I came home and she just looked at me. She gave me the look mm-hmm. of like, I really messed up, yeah. and like, what is it? And she's just like, I hate this book, and I'm like, I thought you were liking the book, and she goes, What about the baby? Yeah, and then, yep, yep. Stupid me. This was the dumbest thing I could have said. <laughs> I'm like, What baby? Oh, that. Oh no, baby. Oh no. And I just like kind of sheepishly like like walked in the <sighs> corner and started like, Hey, hey, my pregnant wife.
1: Do yeah. you need Do you need a back rub? You're so good. Can I cook that. you dinner? <laughs> but. It- and I, th- I really do think that that's, that's what attracted me to Matt. I mean, he's so smart, and I think he really genuinely cares about Ben. I think he really genuinely cares about Mark, and I think he cares about, because some of these people were his students. That's another thing. You know, he, they talk about him being that, the really, like, liberal teacher and, and a lot of people looking up to him. You know, he's probably the most intelligent person in the town. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there's no question. Of the I, characters we meet. Uh, right. Certainly. Right. And, yeah. and I, I think he's lauded as that in the town. Mm-hmm. But he's also just like, he's also quirky and like kind of confident, but not really, you know?
0: Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. You know,
1: that's my ramble
0: about why I like Matt. You know, though, that he was my favorite character,
1: too. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We do a podcast together. Shocking. Listen, this is not scripted, y'all. This is not scripted. Yeah, so
0: interestingly enough, and why I wanted to ask you why. Okay, well,
1: tell me, Derek, why
0: is Matt your favorite character? In part because Ben Mears is a little insufferable. Yeah, he is. Um, You're right. Jimmy Cody is a little, Dr. Cody, he's a little too easy to love. Yeah, sure. And god damn does he not have a gruesome heroic sacrifice of his own life like a great character but also a little too easy where matt's kind of like the sleeper hit to me well and i was also all in on susan but we'll get to her yes we're saving susan for the end for last and for me it was because that um matt does kind of represent this sort of non-alpha male, alpha male. I think you hit the nail on the head.
1: He's an empathetic alpha
0: male. He he is someone that's just like, listen, I know I have a heart attack and I know I have to sleep and I know that I'm going to die, but I'm going to solve the riddle of Barlow and tell you how to defeat him. And I don't care that it kills me
1: because this is more important than my life. And I think that he's just a part of the lot. I think he's a part of the lot, just like the Marston house. I think he's I, I think he is a moniker to that town.
0: I love that. I totally agree with that too. And I really love him literally working himself to death to solve this problem. And because he's willing to die for the lot. Yep. You know? And that's crazy that this really backwardish, really bizarre, perpetually evil main town has a teacher like Matt in it is really great. And I love that Matt is confident enough w- when he's talking to Ben and his connection with Ben. Ben's like, so why don't you write? And he's like, I had this problem, Ben. I wasn't any good at it. Yeah, that's right. And I love his honesty. Like, you know, and I, I, I connect to that. So I played the drums for a long time and people are like, well, why don't you play drums in a band, Eric? And I'm like, no, oh, it's really easy. Why I wasn't any good at
1: it? Right. Oh, come on.
0: No, but I connected to that idea because I'm sure Matt could write a decent story. Oh, sure. But he's not enough. He's not a Ben Mears.
1: Right, of of course. So compared
0: to like a really good drummer who deserves to get paid to drum, yeah, I'm not one of those Like because I was just never good enough at it. And that's just a fact. And I connected with his humility about his weaknesses. And I connected very much with his ability that in his moment, his first moment when he first confronts a vampire, mm-hmm. he almost dies from, from fight fright. And oh, then, right. And then he leads and organizes the resistance. And I
1: love that transition. Yeah. He's brilliant. By the way, everybody, I was glaring at Derek. He, yeah, you were. I was glaring at him when he was putting himself down and the drums. I've heard him play the drums. He's very good. We're both drummers.
0: I'm not putting myself down. I'm He's just, just a very good drummer. Honest about how he, I can play the drums. No. No.
1: Your, your opinion your opinion means nothing here. We want to close this out with Susan. Well, I have two things. Oh, okay. I want to do Go Susan ahead. and then one more thing. So let's talk about Susan, okay? Because Susan reminds me a lot of Susanna in that we talked before about how Stephen King, like most male writers and male-facing writers, uh, he has a problem. He has a bit of a problem. Right? Like Susan, to me, up until we meet Matt, is like the most compelling character. And she's the first main character to be turned into a vampire. And then all of a sudden, it's this group of men figuring out the case when she was an integral part of it. Now, we honestly, we could have lost Matt as a vampire and it would have been just as compelling of a story, but we lose Susan and I I loved her, man. She's, you know, she's what my mom used to call a little spitfire, you know, like she's got, she's, she's bold. She's courageous. She's got a great attitude. She's sexy. I mean, she's confident, you know, like, and then she meets, I mean, she's got all kinds of drama. She's going to be basically engaged and then she meets this writer. Oh, sparks are flying, man. But then we learn, like, she's so complex and so interesting, like Susanna. And I think Stephen King gets to a point where he's like, I understand a woman about up to here. And then it changes. And I don't know. It's not to, like, directly criticize him, but it's kind of like, come on. Come on. Susan could have been there till the end. I get that. At least in my opinion. Yeah. Listen, There's I- no reason she shouldn't have been part of that last group.
0: I really enjoyed Susan's um I really enjoyed Susan as a character. From start to finish, I thought that she was one of the most interesting characters. Absolutely. I enjoyed the frankness of the romance between Susan and Ben. Oh yeah. I it enjoyed It was very raw and it felt very real. I enjoyed Susan's complex relationship to her mother and her father. Yes. And I really thought that there was a foundation that I'd like to see Susan
1: overcome
0: some of these things.
1: And then we get nothing. She just gets, she gets turned and, you know, and, and, and and, and that struggle at home, like that's somewhere where like her and Mark can, can connect with one another. And, and the way that you're putting all these different pieces together basically gets stripped from us because I really do think that, that King gets to a point where he just, doesn't know what else to do with the female characters in the stories.
0: I I guess that's fair. And I'm not saying you're wrong. And there's a point where maybe that's harsh where, well, so, you know, Mark and Susan are both going into the Marston house. And at that point in time, one of them can only one of them can make it out alive, right? Because he's got, Stephen King has to up the stakes and he likes to write his characters into corners and see that's how they true. make them out of it. That's yeah. he, he says, what I do is I create characters and I write them into corners. And then I think, Oh my God, how are these characters going to get out of it? And he has to choose one to make it out alive and one not. And he chooses, he chooses Mark. Yeah, he does. Susan. He and does. There can be a lot read into that. Oh, psychoanalytically, man. Of course there good. can be a lot read into whether that's right or wrong decision but at the end of the day, I would say Susan and Mark are the bravest of these new heroes. Oh,
1: absolutely!
0: And this is this is not a one to one comparison. This is not something that I'm going to say that's going to make a. This oh, is not drama. something that's going to make a it. lot of people happy. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's go. It's a common refrain if you read memoirs from soldiers who survived battles. It's a common refrain throughout from this starts from the civil war because in the civil war was the first time where the common soldier was more likely to be literate and able to write their thoughts than any other american war from the civil war on people that have read the memoirs of the soldiers find that those that survive battle struggle with being called heroes because the bravest people the heroes often die sure And they're like, I survived because I was less brave Mm -hmm. than the person that died. This is true of the Civil War. Specifically from what I have studied, this is true both of the Civil War and World War II. Other wars, it could be different. I haven't studied those. But in these two instances, that's the case. And we have the two bravest characters literally confronting evil itself in Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. And one of them has to die susan is the one that in this scenario is the bravest she's the one willing to go into the basement i think that totally maps for her character absolutely that she'd be the one to go into the basement and the one willing to go into the basement to say this isn't a haunted house and if there is a vampire i'm gonna kill it and i don't even think there is was susan and that's the character that doesn't make it out of there so i don't think it uncouples from the character we've Mm -hmm, learned mm -hmm. it's a shame that her journey gets cut short and does that map on a broader pattern of stephen king doing sometimes his female characters not as much justice as he should absolutely in this instance do i think that's a justifiable character decision that leads to her death
1: i kind of do no I, i that's that's valid you know leave it to derek to just be inherently positive and 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 take my cynical ass and say, Steve, yes. And here's the really positive way to look at it. Cause, it, cause we're bo- I think we're both right. I don't think you're wrong. And I, I, really, think you're wrong. I really don't think I, I really don't think you're wrong. Guys, and I l- think- listen, everyone, we do this podcast because we think we really disagree with each other. <laughs> like we wildly di- this is a debate. If anyone hasn't figured that out yet.
0: And we're trying to just one up each other.
1: No. Um, All right. I only have one other thing. I don't, I, 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 do you have anything else to add for Susan? Um, no, go on. And we have one other thing. Uh, and it's something that we probably, or I probably should have mentioned earlier. Uh, we were talking about background, but one of the things I forgot and my wife, Rebecca, she just finished night shift, which is a, like a collection of short stories that he, I think that he wrote very early on, like, like 1968, 1969. And one of the short stories is, is entitled Jerusalem's Lot. And he penned it in college. Oh, thank you, notes. Um, but he didn't publish it until years later in Night Shift. So again, he probably published Jerusalem's Lot around the time that he published The Very First Gunslinger. It was in college. so It was probably in that time period. Um, and it's all about Salem's lot in the early 1800s. And he foreshadowed the, the events of, of this book by, and, and it says, quote, in the early 1800s, a whole sect of shakers, a rather strange religious persuasion at best, disappeared from their village, Jeremiah's lot in Vermont. The town remains uninhabited to this day. So it's this, it's this whole story. It has nothing to do with vampires, but I think it's told in like a series of letters. We haven't read it yet. We will, but we haven't read it yet. But I think... I actually have. You have, right? I haven't. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. So it's... It, it, right, it's, it, it, am I correct? Is it You're told, correct. It's oh. told through a series of letters. And like the fact it, that... And the, it's brilliant. And the town does hold some inherent evil. So I do think it's interesting that Steve, to, to harken back on what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. I do think that Stephen King uses location as a character yeah i mean mean, we saw that rampant through the dark tower you know and i think he i think the fact that i also love that he's from maine lives in maine and writes about maine because because again new england's a i'm sorry to any of our new englanders out there i mean ever i hate the patriots but i'm sorry to any of the new englanders out there but New England's a, a crazy weird place. I mean, so is Pennsylvania, don't get me wrong. But like it makes sense, you know, again that he's writing about Maine.
0: Oh yeah, I totally agree with that. So the short story of Jerusalem's Lot is phenomenal. Yeah. It is That's what, that's really what Rebecca says. Gri- it's really gripping. It's really it's one of the best ghost stories ever. Mm. And it like many great ghost stories, That's pretty high praise leaves a very ambiguous sure, way sure. to interpret it. Yeah, but it's no secret to me that King comes back to this place time and time again, or that it. This is a place that matters to him because you mentioned place as an important thing to King, and clearly the place that matters to most to him is Maine and New England. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's where, if the Dark Tower existed on a graph of or a map of North America, it's where the dark tower would be Abs-
1: The Rose would be right outside of the house.
0: It's no sh- secret that Ludd and New York are similar and our characters are getting colder as they get closer yeah, to the you tower. Know, you know, they're traveling to Maine, you know, it's no secret when they get there that they are traveling. The drop-ins where are the drop-ins happening, Turtleback
1: lane. Where's that in Maine? You know, you blew my mind again. I was waiting for it. It hadn't quite happened yet, but, but it happened. That blew your mind? Oh, yeah. The tower's yeah, because, in Maine. Yeah, because the truth is, is well, but, but, but technically it's in New York in one reality, right? The, the rose I, in, in this, re- yes. Can I just say that I love the fact that we're constantly going to reference the dark tower? I'm sorry. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm a little fanboy, that's listen, all. Listen, dude, all things, all things. All things serve the beam. And all things serve the tower. Even the beams serve the tower. So I don't know, man. I mean, that's, that's
0: what I have for this book. I think just like high level end thoughts here. I thought that this was Salem's Lot, one of the most entertaining,
1: fun books oh, I've ever read to I read life. it in five days. You read it much quicker than I I did. Re- I could not, well, and also quarantine, but like I could not put it down. I woke up with it in my hands for almost two hours. I sucked down a lot of coffee while I read this book.
0: It evolves the vampire narrative, couches it in Americana and in particular, a cynical version of Americana that is very reminiscent of the seventies. That gives us lessons that we can parcel through today. I think the characters are alive and brilliant.
1: They're, They're very easy to connect to. And I mean, the town that, is brilliant. But again, w- w- we talked about this a lot in the original series. And the fact that Stephen King knows character. If, if there's one thing that he knows better than anything. Because I'll tell you, I never once felt in this book scared. There were moments of, 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 of minor terror. Of, oh, oh, wow, oh, man, oh, disgust. But I never felt like, I know we're going to get there. I've been told by so many Stephen King fans, just wait, you're going to get there. But what I loved about this was that what really enticed me was the, were the struggles of the characters. Their internal struggle with the fact that not only do they have to fight vampires in their town, but they have to fight themselves. What do these people actually believe in? What actually motivates them? What is courage? What is being a hero? What is tackling evil when, when you're faced with it? You know, I think a lot of people, including myself, could say, oh, yeah, I mean, if evil came into my town, I would eradicate it. Absolutely. Until you fucking face it down. It's not that easy.
0: You may have a heart attack.
1: Right. You it may,
0: may turn you into a vampire. Right.
1: You know, your entire life of looking out the window through a pair of binoculars, you just end up being a dead zombie just like everyone else. Which is
0: why I can't be too down on Susan becoming a vampire, because I'm like, some of these characters are gonna face this. The bravest, the one that took the threat less seriously and was overzealous in their bravery, which is not to say that's a character
1: fault morally, but just a fault in the scenario. Sure, and it's also the 70s and like, it's a male writer. There are going to be more male main characters. I, maybe it's just, maybe it's the twenty twenty me. You know, that's just like, well, you know, Ben could have went. Ben wasn't that interesting. I mean, truthfully, I, I mean, of all of them, Ben is like the most selfish to me. He's the most kind of like, uh, you know, I could do with or without Ben. I don't know. Oh, man. that's I a don't bold know. statement yeah, of here of course at the it end. Is. I I mean. Ben was a really interesting What, you didn't character. think I was going to throw that bomb in there? I mean. It's not that he's not interesting. It's just like he's not interesting enough. Like, I found more power and more interest in Susan than I ever did in Ben. Fair enough, man. You know what? At the end of the day,
0: if that's how <laughs> you feel, great.
1: <laughs> Derek is like, I do not. Steve, I do not want to open this can of worms at the end of this episode.
0: Well, you know what? No, I get it. I get but it. We relate to the characters. We relate to, of course. In it's, the not, ways, it's not a. It's not a competition. Yeah, in the ways that we relate to them, and I don't think you. I, there's nothing that you've said that I can say like, oh, I disagree with. Um, other, I mean, I personally thought Ben was interesting. Yes, is he a, a map of Stephen King at that time? Very much so. A writer. He's described oh, that he yeah. actually looks like Stephen Thick, King. Thick black hair, glasses, a little skinny, little yeah. nerdy, yeah, with yeah, a, you know, his sport coats that yeah. don't fit right, and like wah wah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do it, but he like likes beer, but is not an alcoholic. Well, right. Yeah,
1: okay. That well, that's the one thing it's not yeah. true. But you yeah, know. but I
0: mean, that's Stephen King's idealized version hey, of, of himself, himself, right? Sure, sure, sure. So,
1: like, do I think you that know what that's it reminds true? me yes. of you know in the part where we see the three Stephen Kings in the Dark Tower? It reminds me of the middle one. The one that looks like the most uh, him in the seventies. That,
0: that makes a ton of sense. Thank you. Um, now that we're at the end here,
1: what should we do next? I mean, the, the, the way that we started, this was a direct connection to the dark tower, right? We had, we had father Callahan. So to me, we have one of three books that could be directly connected. Okay. So we have the stand, which is, you know, the man in black's foray. We have insomnia, which directly mentions the red uh, or, or uh, the Crimson King. Or we have it. So we're looking at it,
0: the stand, or insomnia. Just throwing this out here, totally crazy. Should we put this on a Twitter poll? Yeah, absolutely. You think so? Yep. So let's. So the three books that we have to decide from are going to be Insomnia, The Stand, or It. Ugh. And which one we should read next. God, I'm terrified. Okay, so we're going to throw this out there on Twitter. Everyone, keep your eyes on At The Midnight Myth. Mm-hmm. It'll be At The Midnight Myth on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And vote for the book we should do next. Should we do it like in a week so we can get started? Um, now nah, let's give them time. No, no, let's do this. We're going to post this probably in a week from when we've recorded it. Cool, cool. So from this then. is going to go up, and then two days later that Great. it's up, we'll have a Twitter poll. Done. Perfect. And then, so everyone out there, just vote for what you think we should do next. And, the stand, it, or insomnia. And I'll throw this out there. Other. If there is a other... Right. And more people vote for another book that we haven't yeah, that, considered? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I would much rather do it like the people want to hear. Remember, we're going to do every... We have committed, at least right now, in our, where we are in our lives, we have committed to reading every single Stephen King book. And so,
0: talking about and that. And
1: talking about it. So what we've decided was that these are the ones that we feel, the three that popped into my brain, that feel the most the closest to The Dark Tower. But if there's something else you want us to read, throw it in there.
0: Anyway, I'd like to uh, roll down, because we are pretty much out of time, this episode. I I would like to end with a really quick quote that I thought was really great. Sure. Real simple. And it's about Jerusalem's lot. And the quote goes like this. The town kept its secrets, and the Marston house brooded over it like a ruined king. Mm. Long
1: days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.